Welcome to Pop Culture on the Apricot Tree, where we talk about gospel insights through great stories and help you find entertainment that is both true and beautiful. I'm your host, Liz Busby. I'm a writer of science fiction and fantasy and a reviewer of books and a Latter-day Saint. And with me today is Carl. Hello, everyone. Good to be back. Introduce yourself. Uh, My name is Carl Cranny. I have a PhD in religion and I've written on the intersection of religious themes in pop culture before. And then we also have today Spencer. Introduce yourself, Spencer. Hi, so I'm Spencer. I'm a student at BYU right now, and I'm also a research assistant for Book of Mormon Central, and also one of my professors, Lincoln Blumel, in the Bible. Nice. So we always start with our best book segment. So we're going to start by each of the podcasters recommending something they're watching, reading, or listening to. My recommendation today is called um, Rejiggering the Thingamajigger by um, Eric James Stone. It is a, a sci-fi fantasy short story collection. Um, Eric James Stone, you might know um, from, he won a Nebula, no, a Hugo Award for his short story that's about Mormons in space, um, which is in this collection, which is called That Leviathan Whom Thou Hast Made. And it's about missionary work to the space whales. So it won a Hugo. It's really great. And there's a lot of other really funny stories in there, like one where the main character is an intelligent Tyrannosaurus Rex with a talking gun. And it works. So I highly recommend this uh, collection. It's really fun. I'm curious, how does the Tyrannosaurus Rex hold the gun? doesn't need to. The gun is intelligent, so it just floats around. Oh, actually, okay. the gun is pretty trigger happy. So the <laughs> Tyrannosaurus Rex is always trying to talk down the gun. Like, no, we don't actually need to shoot things. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to take your recommendation up. That sounds wonderful. It's, it's delightful. Yeah. And there's, there's a couple other stories in there that do bring in LDS themes or LDS characters, which are really fun. Okay, Carl, what have you got for us today? So about... Ten years ago, NPR came out with their top 100 science fiction and fantasy books of all time. And I realized that there's been a lot of science fiction and fantasy that's come out in the last ten years. But I looked at that list and I realized that I only read like 40 of the 100 books or so. And so I've slowly been picking away at it. And so right now I'm working on The Crystal Cave by Mary Stewart. And uh, so far it's been been fun. But uh, that's just an ongoing project of mine and this is just where I am in that project right now. Interesting. I've never heard of that one. You want to give a little summary or a synopsis? So this is um, um, this is Mary Stewart attempting to do a little bit of uh, sort of a retelling of a King Arthur story. Okay. Um, and so it's uh, it's got some it's some fan fantasy elements there as well, and uh, uh, I've been enjoying it so far. So yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Spencer, what have you got for us? Yeah. So. Uh, this re- uh, year, especially for Come Follow Me, I've been using Robert Alter's uh, The Hebrew Bible, a translation and commentary. Uh, it's very good. He's a Jewish These ones? scholar. Right here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those ones. Those ones. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, he, he's a Jewish scholar, but he has a lot of great insights, and his translation is very beautiful, uh, literarily uh, speaking. Yeah, I was going to pull up his uh, Psalms translation when we get there, because I feel like we always give the Psalms a little bit of a short shrift. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and I feel like it's really important that we broaden our horizons a little bit as members of the church and try different translations. 
Yeah, I do like uh, the church did recently put out that statement that, you know, while we use the King James Version in church, other translations are especially helpful in our private or academic study. And I really uh, agree with that. I, there's I think a lot it's in the handbook, that. actually, right? Like, it's a handbook yeah, statement. <laughs> it is. I was so happy to see that statement. Yeah, me too. All right. Fantastic. Well, today we're here to talk about the Wheel of Time, which is why I braided my hair, because I figured it was appropriate. <laughs> Thematically, I had to. Um, so the Wheel of Time. on it a couple of times. Yeah, I'll, I'll tug on it periodically <laughs> when you guys are getting boring. Um, <laughs> um, so I thought we'd start by talking about what our history is with the Wheel of Time, each of us. I have I not read the books. I read maybe about half of the first book. I'm typically a fantasy fan, but I just kind of hit the wall and Robert Jordan was like, I'm good. I'm good. So I went into it not knowing a whole lot about what was supposed to happen. How about you guys? What's your history with Wheel of Time? So I read the first eight books when I was in high school. Um, I really enjoyed them. I, I thought it was a very detailed i love the world building that there was just so many moving parts and they were all believable and the the interior politics seemed uh, uh coherent and i and i loved it but as i kept reading it i just noticed that that like less and less kept happening and the book is were still a thousand pages and i remember reading the dust jacket at one point where it said robert jordan can plans to continue writing until they nail his coffin shut and i was like um i I'm not interested in reading the rest of these if nothing's going to happen and you're going to die before the series ends. And so I stopped and then he died before the series ends. It like, was your fault. It was my Well, I just like seven years later, I just, it was prophetic. And, and uh, I was like, well, I called that one. Um, for the record, Robert Jordan, uh, George R. R. Martin, I predict the same thing is going to happen to him. We already know how Game of Thrones ends at least one version. I wonder if he's going to change it since the reaction to the end of the TV show was so terrible. But I'm getting Robert Jordan vibes from George R.R. R. Martin. Um, but I was really happy to hear that, that Brandon Sanderson uh, picked it up. Uh, I had him actually as a creative writing professor uh, at BYU. Oh, nice. And, and that was just incredibly fun. And I'm a big fan of, of uh, Brandon's work. But I haven't gotten around to the wheel of time to finishing it because it is I'm I'm working my way kind of backwards through the NPR top 100 and wheel of times like number eight and so I'm I don't know I'm gonna get there someday and I just I haven't finished the series yet so that's where I am. Yeah, and so I uh, found out about the wheel of time because I found out about Brandon Sanderson. Uh, I started reading Brandon Sanderson books in the eighth grade. When I was going through the library for more, I saw some books that were co-authored by Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson, which were, you know, the last three books in the series. So I started reading them in high school. I finished the entire series, all 15 books long, when you include the uh, prequel. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I almost did quit after book one because things just seemed to be moving so slow, but... You know, it really picked up in book two, and so I, I'm glad I stuck through because it was a good series, all in all. I enjoyed it, at least. 
Yeah, it is one of like the classic epic fantasy series. I kind of yeah. feel guilty that I haven't read it yet. Um, yeah, um, there were some books in the middle, like book nine, I felt absolutely nothing really happened by the end of it, you know, and it did kind of drag on, but it was like taken as a whole. It had a really good story, uh, character wise, you know. When when book nine came out, my brother read it, uh, and then he told me nothing happened in that book, and and I yeah. said, "That's that's what I'm glad that I stopped at book eight then, because that's <laughs> really when I saw the writing on the wall, and it turned out to be true." Um, but I'm I'm glad the whole thing is wrapped up now, and I do look forward to reading it at some point. But yeah, when Nathan's like, "Literally nothing happened in that book," it's like, "Why? Why? Maybe." Anyway, I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking, but there you have it. You're you're yeah, not the you first go. person to have yeah. mentioned that to me. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting when they change it into a TV series. The changes they have to make. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a chance to reinterpret it, right? Um, how did you feel, Spencer, as someone who's read all the books they did on that? Yeah. So I think, especially when they had eight episodes. So essentially eight hours to tell a thousand page book story that covers all of book one. There were some things that they just absolutely had to drop. Uh, and so I think some of that was for the better. They, uh, for example, with the eye of the world, there was a lot of really complex world building in the book that I didn't even fully understand when I read it. And in order to appeal to the newer audiences, as well as, those like me who've read all the books, I I understand and I do agree with some of those decisions to drop some of that material. There there was some other uh, things, however, especially with the magic system that I felt they should not have changed. Uh, that it did dramatically change the entire world. But we can talk about that later. Um, Oh, yeah. I heard yeah. it was mostly like the two halves of the magic they didn't yes. make quite right. And um, that, that I understand is like the central theme of the book is like the male and female halves. Yeah. it they they In changing that, they really did uh, essentially make their own magic, like a brand new magic system and the reincarnation system as well, uh, which we can talk about later, too, was kind of different. Yeah. Yeah, in in the books, the the distinction between say it in and say it are is is an enormous one, and it was even like several books in before I realized that the 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 white flame to symbol the Aes Sedai, the the female Aes Sedai, and the the dragon's fang are two halves of the yin and yang symbol, like and but because they always talked about them separately. Uh, in in the books, it was several before I got in. So I was several books deep before I realized that they were supposed to be two halves of 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 a whole uh, symbol, and and I think I agree with you that that I don't know that they they completely there there's they didn't explain it fully such that I think they've curtailed the possibility of having the magic system still be two halves of the one source or the, the mm-hmm. of the one power from the true source. Yeah. I, I yeah. feel like as someone who hasn't read the books as much and so isn't up on the lore, I still did get kind of that sense. I think it doesn't come out as much until like 
maybe episode eight where they have the little prologue flashback yeah. to the last time the dragon came and you see the two halves are supposed like the people are supposed to be working together that kind of makes you understand a little bit more oh what happened here um but yeah it's definitely not going into it as deeply as the books could right yeah yeah i, w- I, w- I do wonder how they could have shown that though because i like that they tried to show that the, the magic is tainted for all the male users but I was wondering if there might have been a visual way of of showing that the male magic users are are using something different. Like maybe the every time the women channel it's white, and when the men channel it's black. But then you could have like a a, a purple element that represents the uh, I don't know, right? There, right? Because yeah. it, it seems have to make like maybe the corruption is the black part, and so it would be white both ways, and so it's not quite right. clear, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, and- they 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 could have handled that, I think, in some different ways visually but just chose not to and i think that was unfortunate yeah and they do represent evil like in episode two with shadar logo uh (laughs) it is you know like in the book it was a silvery mist was the evil of shadar logo but they changed it and i think quite fittingly i i do like how it's that black creeping shadow you know that just kind of encompasses everything um So, you know, that you have that black, I think, does represent the dark one's taint. Yeah. Um, some of the things that I hear were were poor choices, and I kind of agree as a person who hasn't read the books, um, having Perrin kill off his wife uh, in the first episode, that was really weird. Um, generally not a fan of fridging female characters in the first episode. Kind of not a cool way to give your main care your main male character motivation in a story. I'm not a big fan. Yeah, that is the most obvious one to me that I completely disagree. I mean, I recognize again that that they have like eight main characters and they're trying to give them all something to do. And Robert Jordan didn't give Perrin that much to do early on in in some important ways. Um, and I like that they're they're laying the groundwork for what's going to come for him later, but it's just groundwork. And so mm-hmm. I understand they wanted to give him something, but you're right. Like having him kill a female character is, is cliche and a little lazy. Didn't, yeah. Didn't, didn't work for me. And I, I think I recognize why they did it because in the books, you know, Perrin is this big guy and he always has this fear of what if I accidentally hurt someone? And so I can see how they're kind of laying the groundwork for that inner conflict, but they could have handled it in a way that didn't require Perrin to get married just to kill her off after 10 minutes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about Perrin's storyline because we do like to talk about the gospel aspect or the morality of the shows we watch on this podcast. So before, I think Perrin's storyline is going to be really interesting, right? Because he's got the, the is pacifism the best moral philosophy or should you be fighting and should you be scared of hurting the people you love when you're fighting? Like that's kind of an interesting thread that they have there with them. And I don't know where it's going. I know I've heard a little bit, but I don't really know where it's going. Yeah. But before we get into that, can I just say one thing though, that, that, that sprung to my mind that, that because Perrin is such a big guy and that's part of his character, can I just say that the one complaint I don't have is the casting. I think everybody did an amazing job of, of 
embodying the characters that they play. And the fact that the guy that plays Perrin looks like he's seven foot tall and he has shoulders for years. Like he's perfect. And, and it works well with literally every other character. I think they, the casting director deserves a gold star. Yeah. And you know, one complaint that I have seen, I don't agree with it is they're like, Oh, well, Rand just kind of complained for the first four episodes. Well, if you've read the book, that's all he seems to do in the first book is complain, you know, and and they really did nail those aspects of these individual characters. I I do enjoy it. I I do kind of agree with that complaint, though, because they're trying to make it a storyline like, ooh, who's the dragon? But it's like, Egwene has the magic, and so does uh, Nynaeve. Nynaeve. Yeah, and... Then Perrin's got this thing with the Tinkers, and then Rand has nothing. So who's going to be the dragon? I can't imagine. Oh, and Matt's got his knife. So it's like he's the only one without something, and because they're trying to set that up, they can't do anything with that until Mm -hmm. episode seven. And so he does end up being like just kind of there. I did read one review that talked about how I don't understand why this character or this actor who's playing Rand keeps acting like he's the central focus of the story. He really just isn't. And I was like, you clearly have not read the books, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> he is, but... Uh. Yeah, um, anyway, I, I I just wanted to talk a little bit about that question of pacifism versus, like, standing up for what's right and fighting. Because that's, that's a theme we see in the scriptures, too. Like, we have characters who stand up and fight for what's right. We have, like, Captain Moroni. But then we also have characters who are, like, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's who choose not to fight, who choose to die rather than fight, which is much more like the Tinkers, the way of the leaf thing, that it would, it's better for us not to do that. So I, I was wondering kind of what's your perspective on that, the portrayal of that in this show and where it's going further? Thoughts? Yeah. Um, you know, I think just from a Latter-day Saints perspective, um, we especially recognize that in our scriptures with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's or Captain Moroni. And an, uh, the Doctrine and Covenants does say that uh, peace is the first option, right? If we can get peace, we strive for peace. But when the Lord tells us to go stand up and fight, then we need to you know, fight like Captain Moroni did. And there's even a story in Judges of, you know, a Levite's wife is killed and all of the tribes are willing to go uh, reclaim their honor, in essence, except for the tribe of Benjamin. So they do end up going to war with Benjamin and they approach the Lord and the high priest says, yeah, the Lord says go and fight. And they go and fight and they lose. And they go back and say, should we have really fought? And the Lord says, yes, go back and fight some more. So they go, they fight, and they lose again. And then the third and final time, the Lord says, okay, now that I've, well, essentially, now that your faith's been tested and you keep coming back to me, this time I will deliver them into your hands. And they're able to rely on the Lord and have that victory. And I think, you know, in many cases, um, it is just, relying on the Lord and doing what he requests of us when it's requested, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, for me, I I really appreciated the the discussion about and and in the wheel of time, you can't separate it from their cosmology that there is this wheel that keeps turning and and you will be reincarnated. And so the discussion that Perrin has with the 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 Tinker Woman when she says, "Look, you know, my daughter died. I went after the guys who killed her, and and there was this moment where I could have enacted some violence, but I chose not to because the wheel is going to bring her back again." And when she comes back, I want the world to be a better place. And that's why I don't perpetuate the cycle of violence. I really liked that because, because it, it, it's clear where the, the writers are kind of coming down on these various worldviews. You have like the, the Dark Friends worldview where they just they want to stop the cycle and let the Dark One take over to end all of the suffering. Um, yeah, that's and, one thing I really liked about the show is that it takes the characters' religion seriously. It's not just mm-hmm. like, oh, we worship yes. the fire god, so we have fire magic, but it doesn't affect our lives in any way. It's like, no, everybody believes in reincarnation, and so we've thought about how reincarnation would affect their lives yeah, and yeah. how that would change how they act, like the Tinkers. Yeah, and, and I, I really appreciated that because it's – it's something that uh, obviously we as Latter-day Saints don't uh, believe in reincarnation, but I think it does help us appreciate the, the different worldviews of some of our brothers and sisters and, and how that would change the way they would approach an issue like pacifism versus defense versus offensive war. Uh, it, it, looks, it looks very different if you believe that you're, this, this is going to come around again. Uh, and, and that was, uh, anyway, that was probably my favorite part of the entire season was just that, that moment where he just, just he and the woman are just sitting around talking, but it was like really well written and it helped you understand both of these characters really well. And I like that, that for him, since, since he's had this traumatic experience, even though it seems like the three of us all agree, it was really silly for the writers to put it in where he kills yes. his wife, but but he's confronting the violence and the damage that he has caused. And this woman has this moment with him that causes him to rethink some of that. And, and despite the fact that that storyline started off pretty terribly and very cliche, it went to a place that I, that I really appreciated. Uh, in yeah. And then it turns again when he gets to the white cloaks, right? Like the question yep. of like, should he use violence against them? Cause he totally can. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, he had a good character arc. I like that a lot. Yeah. And even, you know, while we don't believe in reincarnation, of course, we do believe in making the world a better place, doing everything we can to prepare for that because we too believe that we'll see our loved ones again. And, right. Uh, yeah, know, and that, I think you can translate it over pretty easily to be yeah. like, yeah, she, her daughter's lost in this life, but she doesn't need to go seek revenge because she would still be there. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing that we try to think about at funerals and things that we will see our loved ones again, and not to get too too far into grief. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, and the other one that that I think uh, that we ought to mention really quick, even though it's only hinted at in the beginning of of episode eight, is 
the ancient dragon, the last time the dragon was was part of the cycle, he kind of wants to shut the dark one away so that they don't have like temptation anymore and so they don't so they don't so so things are easier now. And that's kind of his approach to it. And the the Aes Sedai that he's talking to doesn't quite seem on board with that. Um, and you know, we all know how it ended. He arrogantly went to go seal the dark one away and ended up tainting the male half of the power and breaking the world. Uh, and so I, I like that there were various approaches, like the right the, the three we've been talking about: the the pacifism, the way of the leaf, the dark friends just want to end all suffering by just giving the devil giving control over everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the dragon wants to just make everything simple and easy by, by just shutting evil away. And I like that these three embrace evil, just live your life and do the best you can under the circumstances or shut evil away, thereby making it easy are presented as viable options. But I like that the show chose the middle one as, as, as clearly the one it seems to favor the most, which I think goes well with the gospel in that, that shunning evil is, is it's important to live our lives in light of evil and deal with it as opposed to just simply. Well, it goes with the idea of opposition in all things, right? Like yes, we believe the fall yeah, yeah. was a necessity, right? That yeah, that's a better we way need to have it. opposition in the world and the, the plan where there's no opposition and everybody makes right choices all the time it's not the right plan. <laughs> so, yes. yeah, there's definitely Thank you. That was a better that, yeah. way of phrasing it. You know, my only complaint with episode eight is just in, in that one scene, and especially in the final battle, which uh, they did. If you're familiar with how the final battle goes in book 14, it's like they tried doing that in book one in a few ways mm. without getting into many uh, details there. But, you know, it's either like they're trying to foreshadow it or, but at the same time, when we actually get to the final battle, we'll be like, okay, well, we've already kind of seen this before, you know? Uh, so that is just my one complaint about that. But yeah, I, I, I do heard agree there with there were a lot of changes yeah. in the last episode. Yes, um, I, I do agree with you though about those you know, three different worldviews and how they're presented. Well, I think there's kind of a fourth world worldview in the white cloaks, right? We have yes. the view that we have the we have the mandate to enforce morality, and we're going to do that through violence, which is definitely yeah. another way to do things. And it didn't turn out so good in this. Like it is definitely not portrayed positively. Yeah. Yeah. Which again goes to, I think a strength of the show in that it takes all these people very seriously. And, and there's no cackling villains, even like the, the white cloaks Mm -hmm. are definitely the most villainy villains. Like you hate that guy a lot, but you can still like it takes it explains his worldview and why he's doing what he's doing and you can kind of see the twisted logic of it right yeah he he makes sense and therefore is is a good stand in for his particular philosophy of how to approach these issues yeah. yeah and you know one thing that i did notice especially in this worldview is uh 
where, where they say they have the means, therefore we're going to enforce this through violence to be sure that the world becomes a better place. You know, this like, join us or like you're either with us or against us um, mindset uh, is, you know, do the means always justify the ends? Because they want, they too want to make the world a better place. But I just find it ironic that in their process of going about this, they're actually making the world a worse place to live, you know, and, you know, ruling through fear and tyranny never leads to anywhere positive compared to the tinker woman who actually chose the exact opposite path. Who said, you know, I could enact violence to be sure that justice is met and that everything goes the way that I want it to. But what would that mean for my daughter when I see her again? Yeah. yeah, and I think you can imagine a fantasy series where that would like, the white cloaks would be the only religious view in the series, and the message would be religion is terrible because it makes people do the right thing through evil means. Which mm-hmm. is like there are a lot of um, fantasy books where that is the structure that the religion is the evil people, and we have to overthrow them. And so I like that in Wheel of Time, it's not religion is bad. It's like here there's several different religions and they're all some of them are problematic and some of them are not and all different ways of going at things. Yeah. Which is something I'm glad they've preserved from the books that that there you can tell there are distinct cultures and worldviews and approaches even though everybody kind of generally understands that reincarnation is a thing. I suppose that would Which be is the, interesting. Yeah, that would that would be like the the one because how would you prove that reincarnation is true? I like that underlying fact is assumed by everybody, and then they approach it so differently. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would have been more interesting if there were a couple of I don't know monotheists or, or not not mono. If there were a couple more, couple yeah, of people who did not believe in reincarnation. How would you live as a person who denied reincarnation in this world where everybody else believes in reincarnation? That would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. That would be and maybe that will be something that they introduce in a future season. Who knows? Uh, yeah. but. Let's see. Oh, um, so a couple of negative points I've seen among LDS fan groups discussing this is the nudity in the show. So let's talk about that briefly. Um, I think there's two scenes where there's nudity. Do you guys remember? I think in the first scene, we have the bathing scene with Moraine and Lan, where they're very, very strategic but like they're clearly naked. Yeah. And, and then uh, the other one I didn't even I didn't even notice the second one that that there was a I guess a, a scene where there is nudity in the background because they're in a bath setting. Right, it's it's in episode 6 I think where Moraine is talking to the leader of the Blue Aja getting instructions that she's not supposed to leave the tower or whatever. And Mm. she really wants to leave the tower. So they have to figure out all this stuff, but yeah, it takes place in a public bath. And if you're not paying attention to the two main characters in the front, you can see that there's a whole bunch of naked people in the back and just like fully naked people. Well, I I, was paying attention to the people in the foreground, (laughs) right? Like it didn't bother me either. And then I talked with people who were bothered by it and went back and was like, oh, there was more nudity than I actually thought there was in this scene. Interesting. So how do you deal with that as a Latter-day Saint? Like, I know a lot of people who feel uncomfortable with that, but then there's also things like 
classical art where we would not feel uncomfortable with this. And neither of these are like very sexualized. It's both public bathing kind of things, which are normal in some cultures. Like my husband served a mission in Japan. It's very normal there to do public bathing, usually not with men, which is like men, women together is not a thing usually, but um, it's, it's part of their culture and it's not something that is seen as like taboo or scandalous mm -hmm. like it would be in America. What's right. your guys' perspective on that? So for me, the, the things that I find objectionable in TV shows or movies, um, I find them, there are levels of, of objectionable, and the ones that I dislike are the ones that serve no purpose whatsoever. And the, the classic example for me is the first episode of Stargate SG-1, where if you watch like the director's cut, there is full frontal female nudity, and the rest of the show and the two spinoffs, there's like nothing like that ever again. Like it's just thrown in just to hook you and think like, oh, it's going to be one of those shows when it's really not. Like it serves no purpose whatsoever. And so could they have had the discussion with the Blue Aja, uh, uh, the head of the Blue Aja in a way they couldn't, uh, where they weren't in a public bath? Sure. One thing I did like, if I can say that, uh, you there again were different ways they could have done it, but to show the the intimacy, but not the sexual intimacy yeah, of Lan yeah. and Moiré, mm -hmm. the the team that they are, um, I thought they did a very good job at the end of episode one of showing them working together as a team when they're fighting off the the Trollocs and the the Fade Army. Uh, but it was just a nice little moment to be like, here are these two people who are in this moment that you would expect to get all hot and steamy and turn into a Harlequin romance novel, but it absolutely right, like does not. Right, like in The not. Witcher definitely would, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's the exact parallel to, to a scene in The Witcher. You're exactly. right, I didn't think about that. But it doesn't, because that's not... And so it's... So it's very, it's it very good at definitively saying these two are not together, and that does mm -hmm. help with setting up Nynaeve and Lan later. Yeah, Right, because so if it's, we were worried about the them being purpose, together, it would be a problem. I still wish there a way they could have figured out a, a, a way around it. So yeah. yeah, and even then, like my uncle served in Finland, and so you know the so the sauna is a big thing there, and I, for me personally, I don't think like I wouldn't look at the statue of Venus de Milo and say that that's pornographic in any sense of the word just classical art and for like that bathhouse scene just where they really only had the background characters where it was especially visible could they have just done that scene in the bathhouse still without those background characters who sure. might distract someone you know i think that that was an unnecessary addition uh you know uh but as it is interesting to think about how sometimes, especially in American culture, we react to any kind of nudity the same way as we would react to a salacious sex scene, right? There's a difference between like people bathing and people like going at it on screen in a way that should be very intimate. So yeah. I think it's interesting that we can see the gradation between those and they've chosen mm -hmm. to be a little more on the tame side, although probably still there are people who are going to be uncomfortable with it. Yeah. And, you know, it, 
it really is just like different cultures would approach that in different ways. And so I'm sure that in Japan or Finland, they probably think nothing more of it. But, you know, for us, a lot of Americans get really, uh, I guess, nervous yeah. or just... Whereas we're not bothered by the violence as much, but I hear yeah. like people in... People, when I'm on fan groups and there are people in Europe there, they're like, you showed your kids that show? There's so much violence in that show. I'm like, oh, I didn't even think about that. It's like just a superhero movie. It's like no big deal. But yeah, it's so maybe like, uh, it's nice to consider from other perspectives like, oh, let me question how much violence I'm really showing my kids. And maybe mm-hmm. let me ease up a little bit on freaking out when there's a human body on the screen a little bit. And think yeah. about my motivation behind freaking out rather than just like default to freaking out. Yeah. We do just, descend uh, we do descend from Puritans in our Latter-day Saint tradition. <laughs> our and and with all the with all the cultural baggage that comes with that. Yep. Is someone having fun somewhere? We need to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right, glad we're not quite that bad, but the You're not wrong either. <laughs> Oh, the other question I was going to ask about is I had heard the relationship between Moraine and the Amaryllin seed. What's her name? Uh, Swan. Yeah. I've heard that was more implied in the books, whereas in the show, it is much more like explicit that they are a a romantic couple, a homosexual couple. Um, How do you guys feel about that change? Do you feel like it's a big change from the book? You know, to be honest, I read the entire series and I did not pick up on any of that whatsoever. It wasn't until like three months ago that someone pointed it out to me that he really started to imply, you know, that the a lot of the Aes Sedai would do that, you know, and enter into these Had little, pillow friends. Yeah, right? like I just thought pillow friends were, oh, we're just, you know, roommates and let's just talk about life or whatever. I, I really did not pick up on that at all. Um, but so it did surprise me when I found out about that. And so I wasn't really surprised that they decided to make it as explicit as they did in the TV show, just because of the world we live in. Uh, but it's another one of those things like, is this really necessary? You know, um, is like that, that scene, especially with uh, Moraine and Swan, I just... Which ironically has less nudity than the baby yeah. scene, but it's definitely, like, more uh, more sexual. Yeah, it, uh... It's like, could they have just told that story without adding that scene? I think they could have, personally, you know, without keep making everything so sexualized. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, and... and... The, the question I think we have to ask ourselves is like the relationship between Moraine and Swan, is it treated the same as the relationship between Nynaeve and Lan, which, which becomes sexual later on in, in the, in the, in the season. And, and we kind of have to ask ourselves as Latter-day Saints, like these are, these are both from our perspective, sinful relationships because uh, neither the they're not neither is married, uh, but the other one is also homosexual in nature, and so it's it's a question of for me again is this trying to serve any purpose? And the relationship between Moiraine and Swan 
it leads to that very powerful moment where she has to, where where she as the Emerald and Seat has to exile Moiraine. Um, and, and they agree together that they sh- that she should do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, it does so make it, it really heartbreaking. And and I think it did well to set that up. Again, I do ask the question: Is there a way you could have set that up differently that didn't involve? Um, making it rated R or I guess probably more PG 13 in this case. Yeah. But mm-hmm. like, do, does, does the sexuality serve a purpose or is there a, a different way around it? Cause I, I'm again, levels of objectionable, objectionable content. If it's just there just to titillate you, that's useless to me. Right. The, but neither of, none of these were what they called laughingly sex position in game of Thrones. Like we're yeah. just no reason for it to be there other than just, we're going to make this look like it's a, almost a porno in some places. Yeah. Yeah. And I did appreciate, you know, that it did serve a purpose in, in the story, but I, I also question like, is there a way that they could have set that up without you know, titillating you and making you think that uh, this is like, I guess the only way that they could have set it up by making it so sexualized. That's just my take on it. Yeah, definitely. I th- I think different people are going to have different levels of comfort with watching that relationship. Yeah. Um, so my question uh, for you two would be: uh, there's so they're setting up. Lan and Nynaeve to be a couple in the future, is that different category? Leaving aside the, the, the homosexual versus heterosexual conversation, is that a different way? Do, do we treat those differently because this one is basically setting up just a single moment between the two characters where, where one of them gets exiled by the other? as opposed to the slow build that we, uh, I assume is coming. I don't even know if they end up together in the books or not. I think they um, do. I think they, they do. do. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So they do. So, so. Well, and I guess I also forgot the, they, they did the same thing with Rand and Egwene, right? Because they mm-hmm. sleep together in the first episode. They do. Uh, which again, I, I felt like that didn't really. And it's because they aged the characters and, up, um, right? So they're like, oh, now we're adults instead of young adult teens who are awkward. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that that was another scene where I was just questioning, like, is this really something that needed to be in here? Because you can still set up that Rand is in love with Egwene and he's conflicted over her decision to become a wisdom without having to have them, you know, get frisky or anything. Yeah, but I think, Carl, you're bringing up a good point that, like, that sometimes it's easier for us to handle them sleeping together outside of marriage when it's a mm-hmm. heterosexual couple. When Because, like, it brings all, it's like, oh, the romantic feelings, and so it's great, but then we really should think about, you know, maybe they should have some more commitment to each other than just, like, Oh, it's the end of the world. Maybe we should act on our feelings and sleep together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and I almost think I I you know, I'd forgotten the, about Rand and Egwene. I almost think that cl- of of the three instances of of 
sex in this season then i mean did we miss any more those are the only ones right i think those, think are, those the are the ones yeah. they yeah. do imply that the green nausea is in like a threesome with her borders which is oh yeah that, that oh was yeah true. that's true that's true but that's most not screen yeah yeah it's it's not that it's not present the way the, these other actual moments of intimacy are um but but given the dynamics of Rand and wanting to be with her, but she's going to be a wisdom, and it's explicitly mentioned that wisdoms don't marry, and it's very much implied that like Nynaeve does not have a guy on the side anywhere. Like she is, it seems like she's, she's dedicated to her dedicated home. to her craft. She's she's kind of a nun in that sense, like in in the classical sense of a, of someone who's like Roman Catholic nuns dedicate themselves so much to Christ that they take a vow of chastity. And, and it is implied very heavily that Nynaeve is that same way. And that would have made the, at least to me, the, the tension between like what Rand desires of Egwene and what she wants, it, that would have been even better if they weren't already hooking up. So I think that part was completely, of the three, served a, almost a negative purpose in the storytelling. Yeah. yeah. It was kind of interesting. So I hear that they changed the conflict for Rand at the end of the world where they do this scene that he has this dream that, oh, Egwene's going to be his wife and they're going to go back to the two rivers and live the happy life. And then he chooses to reject that and say she wouldn't be the same person if she wasn't following her dream, even if that means I can't have my dream. Which was, I thought that was a cool message about, you know, supporting your partner and figuring out how to work your dreams together instead of being like, you need to be part of my life and I'm not going to consider your life. But you're right, it it is a little confusing with what's going on between them. I really like that part. It's like, fall in love with the person, not your idea or your fantasy of the person and that mm-hmm. that is that's just that's just good relationship advice right good yeah. dating advice <laughs> yeah and you know just taking someone as they are right uh because yep. you know if rand could have had that dream if he could have had that happy little farmhouse with Egwene and their child would would Egwene have wanted that and if so w- how would he feel essentially forcing her into something that she doesn't really want to do, you yeah. know? Uh, so I guess so. I have to take back my, my statement that Rand didn't have a plot line. Cause I feel like that was his plot line was like, mm-hmm. is he going to be like, no, you need to go on my go do it my way. Or is he going to give her up on her? Or is he in the end, his decision is I'm going to follow her and her mm-hmm. dream and figure it out together. So I, I I thought that was a good example of working together in a relationship. For yeah. you're not wrong well, though that his plot line is very compressed, and so it's not as present as well. It's as like it's in episodes one and two, and then Egwene is gone from him for a while, and so it doesn't re- sure. no progress, and then mm-hmm. like seven and eight. Sure. Yeah. 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 I feel like what they try to do is set up this big surprise, like oh wow, Rand's the dragon this whole time because uh, in let's see. Was it episode four when they get to Tarvalon? Uh, maybe that was episode five. But, oh, you know, when Loghain is being marched through the city and then he looks up and laughs, they changed five. that where in, right, episode five. Um, 
But, you know, in the books, Loghain looks at Rand and laughs because, you know, Rand's really the whole main character. But they'd been setting up like, oh, maybe Matt's the dragon. And so they kind of shifted all of that focus up from Rand from the books to these other characters, I think, kind of to try and sideline us and, you know, take people by surprise. But at the same time, everyone could see where that was going. Like, you know, Rand's the only one who didn't have anything. Uh, Yeah. So it would have just made sense that he would be the one who gets the powers, you know. Because everyone else has powers, essentially. All right. Well, I think that was pretty much all the things we had to discuss. So we're going to end by giving some ratings. Um, The first rating is for content. This one's going to be kind of difficult on a scale from celestial to outer darkness. Where are we going to place this one? It's hard. Yeah. Um, like, definitely, I wouldn't put it at Celestial, because there are no. definitely people I know who will feel uncomfortable watching it. I wouldn't say I would take anyone to watch it. I would need to know the person. Yeah. I Maybe Terrestrial. Uh, That's where I'm landing. Really, yeah, it's not really, like, bad, per se, but it certainly could be better, you know. The, the problem for me in trying to rate this is because as we had a really good discussion, even our podcast, the, the, what we've discussed so far, we had a really good discussion about how it takes religion seriously and ethics and different approaches to violence. And like, there's some really good quality stuff in here that I would recommend to almost anybody. But then there's these other things that, that would, would, would give me pause to recommend it. And so I think terrestrial is where I land as well. Okay. I'm, I'm good with terrestrial as well. You definitely need to know your audience um, before mm-hmm. recommending it to someone. Um, in terms of artistic merit, we're going to rate it on a scale of one to five popcorn balls. Where would you put it in terms of enjoyability as a show? I think I'm probably, I feel like the production quality is really good. The costuming and casting are really good. There's not really any clunky line delivery. I was kind of thrown off by the ending episode. Episode eight is a little bit weak in terms of storytelling with two fake out deaths. Yeah, and they they kill off right like two characters who are supposed to be main characters, and so you you just know that they're going to bring them back. I felt that was really unnecessary. It was a little weak, so I can't uh, give it a full five because of the ending. So I think yeah. I'm going to go with four popcorn balls. Yeah, I think I would be in about the same boat. Um, one thing I, I did like, just artistically speaking, is the uh, intro with, you know, the yeah. introduction credits. They're long, but just the artwork that they, they show is, I think, really beautiful. For sure. And I didn't want to skip the credits. My husband was yeah. like, let's skip it. And I was like, no, it's so pretty. Yeah, I mean, like, it's a full minute, but it's a really beautiful minute. Uh they really did take their time and, you know, they, I especially think that in um, the different areas of the world that they visit, they do make each one feel distinct, like they're really traveling across the world, you know, and they really took time into 
what would this culture look like and what would this culture look like you know yeah. and so i really enjoy that it's artistic skills in that department definitely i'm going to be a little contrary and i'm going to give it three popcorn balls um i agree with everything that you've said about all the various parts but but the the thing that i think it was the weakest on was some of the writing now i recognize that it's a first season, and I actually have sort of a policy that I give everything one season uh, if I think I'm going to be interested because uh, I've had some experiences where at the end of a season I'm like, oh, I see where you're going with this now, and, and I become interested in it. Um, and, and I'm going to keep going with this. I, I am intrigued, and so far so good, but I give it, I give it three because there was just some clunkiness with the, with the pacing overall, um, there definitely I are think, some clunky bits. Yeah, yeah. The, the the whole who's the dragon sort of you know sort of mis- murder mystery. I mean, not a murder mystery, but the but who's yeah, the dragon, like, the mystery yeah. part. I I felt was useless because everybody has Wikipedia these days. You can just find out that it's Rand. Like I I don't know that that was necessary. Um, and so to me, if a if a TV show has great writing and the production values are terrible, I would almost rather watch... No, I wouldn't almost rather. I would rather watch a show that has terrible production values but great writing than a show that has great production values and terrible writing. You know, that's um, true. I, yeah. I agree so, with you yeah, on that. Ba- Babylon 5 is looks terrible. It just it looks terrible. Mm-hmm. The, the CGI is, is... Old. It's Well, even... Even in the early nineties, like it was, it was bad. Um, but it remains to this day, one of the most tightly well-scripted science fiction shows or even TV shows of like all time. In my opinion, uh, there are like payoffs in season five that they set up in season one. Like it, it, and so, so to me, that's why I'm going to give it three with, with hopes that they, as they get, as they figure it out, um, I, I have hopes that they will continue. They've they've so far so good. They've done a good job, but uh, it was clearly a freshman outing. Let's hope their sophomore outing is a, a little better on the writing front. Yeah, and just back to the fake out deaths. They they do I think do a fake out death with Tom Marilyn. Oh yeah, but he's another main character who who was even from the very beginning. You know he should have been in episode one. Uh, but they do kind of do a fake out death there. And I do agree yeah. about the writing. Uh, generally, I think, you know, now that they have the whole who's the dragon subplot that they were trying to do over with, I agree. I hope that, and I expect that uh, the writing will only get better from here as they don't have to, you know, keep going back to this, you know, really unnecessary sideline <laughs> it's just part of the part of the problem of adapting a thousand pages into eight episodes like yeah. you, you give them give them credit for you know for yeah, trying for sure. this monumental yeah. task but yeah, i hope yeah. they improve i definitely would not want to have to uh adapt you know a 1000 page book into a tv show like that so they definitely get credit for trying um, yes. they did a lot of good in what they had to choose from and what to keep what to get rid of like i mentioned earlier and one our final I, rating is for the gospel connections um one to five apricots in terms of moral edification of the of watching it 
I, I think it's going to be in the middle somewhere. Yeah. I Maybe like three, maybe two and a half. Yeah, I, I would say somewhere, I would say about three myself, because like we had these great discussions, you know, about, uh, you know, preparing for a better world and, you know, all of these little connections here and there, but there, there were some stuff that, we don't connect with as well, and uh, we, you know, have objections with in many instances. So, for sure. Once again, I'm going to be contrary and give it a four because because I I gave it four apricots because I appreciated their discussion, and maybe this is just uh, my idiosyncrasies coming out here. I liked their discussion of ethics and religion and, and worldviews and things like that. So even though there were moments of things that I don't agree with, maybe this is just bad of me, but I just kind of expect those to show up in, in culture now. No, and so totally the fact agree. that we had the yeah. bad things, but we had some really good stuff, normally we just have the former and never any of the latter. And so that's why I'm going to give it four apricots. I still feel like they can they, they can enhance it more in future seasons, which I expect them to do, like do more discussion of pacifism versus violence and mm -hmm. different religious perspectives. I feel like it it's not the main focus of the show. So maybe I'm going to give it more of a three. Yeah. And um, especially as they bring in like the AL in the uh, like season two, season three, um, you know that that oh, which will we be forgot another... to talk about that scene at all with the woman yeah, uh, while she's giving birth, which was awesome. Which, oh my god, yeah. that scene was off the I, charts. You know, awesome. I the one I've seen a complaint online where it's like, well, she took off her veil when she's fighting. Ale, don't do that. And it's like, she's giving birth, guys. Like, give her. A I break. yeah, <laughs> and like fight. the whole fight scene was just amazing. You know, and it just keeps I, going. Yeah. <laughs> I and especially how Tam comes in at the end, uh, you know, and he chooses to help her, an enemy, you know, during this time. I really love that scene. Uh, I I actually got excited as I was watching it. I was like, "This is this is what they're showing." Yes, this is what you wanted. Oh uh, yeah, I. Uh, but enough about that. I I guess. Um, yeah, that's it, why it I good. have. That's why. Like even in my giving it three popcorn balls to, to go back, this show has so much potential because it had moments like that yes. where it just sang and and I hope there are more of those. Yeah. Yes. Hope they and even out the quality in the future. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, let's just little wrap off. Where can we find you guys online, Carl? Uh, I'm just on Facebook. You're welcome to, to come argue with me there if you'd like to or hang out. Uh, Carl uh, dot Cranny. So, yeah. Spencer? Yeah, I'm also on Facebook. Uh, Spencer Krauss. Uh, I don't remember what my profile little username is. Um, I remember my Instagram is Krauss in the house. Uh, oh, nice. <laughs> and uh, I do also semi-actively blog. Um, I, my blog's name is latterdaylightandtruth.blogspot.com. I'm a student though, so I can't always uh, guarantee, you know, regularity. Uh, yeah, but that that is another place you can find me. And you can follow my writing on lizbusby.com. 
Um, and this has been Pop Culture on the Apricot Tree, encouraging you to seek after everything virtuous, lovely, of good report, or praiseworthy. We'll see you next time. Thank you.